If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. He owed money out on the street and that's how you get shot here and here. It is unlikely that her pistol was used in this crime, but it's not impossible. Nobody wanted to go on record as saying, yes, clearly not the weapon. There's going to be a pretty big noise. This is where you put the jury on a bus and drive them past the place. I cleaned that apartment. That apartment had normal household dirt. There was no reaction for blood. First of all, if I'm doing that, you're probably going to find it somewhere. Lawyers will tell you over and over the burden of proof is on the state. However, if you don't tell your story, the jury thinks you don't have a story. Patty told a story. It's a production, and you're, you're looking around thinking this cannot all possibly be. This can't be happening. It was literally live on court TV every day. This is episode seven, Mickey Finn. Last time on Direct Appeal, we covered the state's case or the beginning of the state's case. We also covered the gun that was introduced and the prosecution used this as a pivotal piece of evidence against Melanie. Now, Melanie's expert at the time didn't have much of a defense to that. They conceded that it could have been that type of weapon. But later on in her appeal, they would unravel some new information that would put this gun into dispute. So we had an expert, our own expert, come in and look. And our expert, who you heard from last time, said that it was more likely that Melanie's gun was not involved. But experts' opinion vary, of course, as we know from the trials. So here's where we have to ask the audience for a little bit of help. We could not find any evidence of Melanie's gun, which was a Taurus 38 revolver with six lands and grooves. If anyone has this type of weapon or can prove that it exists, we would ask you to contact us as we could use your help on this issue. With the specific six lands and grooves. It specifically would be the one we're looking for is six lands and grooves. Um, So again, we would ask for your help. That would be the first point. Our second point, one thing we wanted to conclude about the gun. Let's say, for argument's sake, that it was the gun that was used. Melanie's gun that she purchased was the gun used to kill Bill. If that's the case, isn't it possible still that Melanie did not commit the crime? Isn't it possible that it was Bill's gun was used against him in his own murder? Yeah. So when he left the house that night, he took the gun with him. According to Melanie, the gun was bought for him. And if that was the case and he felt like he needed to protect himself against something, if he was going to be leaving to go to this place that those people might possibly be, then it makes sense that he would take the gun with him. Right. Well, that's Melanie's story. Her her version is that he must have taken the gun with him because she never saw the gun again. And when she showed police officers the storage um, units, there was a gun lockbox, but the gun wasn't in it. She said, I have no clue. Bill must have taken it. So yeah, my, my question is, is it possible that Bill did take this gun with him and he got into some altercation in which the gun was used against him? What we do know, I'm sure you've seen the studies, but studies have shown that people who own firearms have an increased risk of being killed by homicide, suicide, and accident. Which makes sense. So even if this wasn't technically his gun in his name, if he is in possession of this gun, it's certainly a possibility that he was killed with his own weapon. I think that's very plausible. Okay. So we're going to wrap this up on our discussion of the gun. But again, if you have any information that could be helpful to us, we would really appreciate you reaching out. So the prosecution establishes the gun, which is, again, a big piece of evidence. At some point, they're moving on to another significant piece of evidence, which is the chloral hydrate. So what is chloral hydrate? What is the relevance in this case? Is that the same substance that was used in Casey Anthony case? Uh, no, that was chloroform. Oh, okay. Right, but the okay. searches on the computer are what you're thinking of, chlorophyll, okay. chloroform, gotcha. and it has that same sound. But gotcha. chloral hydrate's not a substance that most people have probably heard of. Um, so what is chloral hydrate and what is its relevance in the murder of Bill McGuire? The only reason the chloral hydrate was an issue was because it was found 
in the car. The way it was presented at trial for is being used to sort of tip into someone's drink what Ms. Prezioso kept repeatedly referring to as a Mickey Finn. It's something that theoretically would be used to sleep and something I would discover ultimately is used by steroid users who have difficulty sleeping. When Ms. Prezioso got to the redirect, she kept stressing something the dose determines the poison because my attorneys were basically saying, okay, there's six doses in here, not even the whole bottle is missing. Like, how likely is this? Is this, is this something that could theoretically be lethal? Well, if it's strong enough to be lethal, chances are good that you're going to detect either it or its metabolite somewhere in his system. They weren't 100% sure with something like maybe there were two doses missing, two or three doses. So then the prosecution sort of morphed their argument to say that I used this to keep him drugged and sedated for a number of days. Even if the entire bottle was missing, there's not enough medication there to sedate a 200-pound man for five days. So the test for chloral hydrate was done. There's no trace of this drug. There's no trace of the breakdown or the byproducts of this drug. So basically what their toxicologist was able to say is, well, we didn't look for the byproducts, but it's possible they were there. I have had people tell me since that time that my attorneys should have argued to exclude this information altogether. You're speculating that this had anything to do with anything. Question, did any uh, evidence that Bill used steroids, did he work out? So there was, there's not direct evidence that um, Bill used steroids. Melanie had said that, but here's, here's what there is. And I looked at transcripts and I looked at interviews. Melanie said that his appearance had changed. Bill had put on weight and I guess he was concerned. He looks pretty slight in the pictures. He does. I think those are somewhat older pictures. I don't think we have the most recent. Mm -hmm. And, And what Melanie said was that he had put on some weight and he was concerned about it. She then said that he started to look different, that his head started to look different. Um, So pause there for a second. Move over to his sisters, Cindy and Nancy. When they gave interviews, and I I verified this, they also both said, independent of each other, Bill's head started to look bigger. And one of them said something like Jason Giambi. I don't know if you remember him. He was um, the baseball player, but he was using steroids. And And I guess that's considered... uh, So one of the side effects of steroid use, I guess, is um, a a swollen or a bigger head. So um, Melanie said this, and I thought, well, that could just be Melanie saying it. So then I went to the transcripts again. Cindy said it mm-hmm. and Nancy said it. And his sister Nancy said, I really noticed a change in his face and his head between mm-hmm. the six month period towards the end of 2003. So this would be about six months before he disappeared. Okay. So if he did use steroids, then it makes more sense that he would be using this because this would help with the insomnia, which is a side effect of steroids. Correct. So again, we cannot say there were no steroids found mm-hmm. in his system. We cannot say anything. It was only implied um, by the family and by Melanie. But if someone is using steroids, yes, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's also common to find or not uncommon to find that they're also using these kind of uh, drugs to treat the insomnia or the restlessness as well. So this might be a silly question, but if his blood was drained, or I guess it was drained, they were able to find, would would they still be able to find, you know, um, would they be able to test for certain drugs in his system? Do they test via blood? So they were able to still test. He had blood. Um, oh, he did I, I don't recall okay. how much was left, but enough that they were able oh, okay. to do testing, but they didn't find any of this. But also there's a breakdown. How quickly does it break down? Just like how quickly does alcohol leave the system? Um, and I wonder so, if being in water somehow effects or dilutes? I I don't know. Right. That's a good question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do know that they just didn't find any evidence of any of no chloral hydrate, no steroids. I I don't think they looked at steroids though, to be perfectly frank. I don't think that was something they even thought of at the time to look. Okay. And I have a question regarding the prescription for chloral hydrate, but you're going to be getting to that, I believe, right? So I won't go there yet. Yeah. Let's let's see if you, let's see if I can answer your question. The prosecution says essentially that Melanie wrote this prescription and she picked it up from a Walgreens near her kid's daycare the morning of the closing, which is the morning mm-hmm. that, that Bill disappears. Okay, so surveillance cameras, receipts, credit card receipts, anything. Right. No, no, and no. 
Using Dr. Scott, he was a witness and he was a partner from RMA. If you recall, RMA is Reproductive Medical Associates. So the prosecution is able to show that nurses often had access to doctors' prescription pads and that they wrote prescriptions, um, that the doctors would have nurses call them in at times and that this was somewhat of a regular practice. So the prosecution is saying, yeah, well, she had access to her boss who Mm -hmm. she's having an affair with, Dr. Miller, his prescription pad. So it would be very easy for her to... Um, you know, write this prescription for chloral hydrate. Did she take these prescription pads home that Bill would have access? So, and she's going to talk about that as well, but she did actually take these uh, patient pads home with her okay. because she did a lot of work at home. She was kind of an on-call nurse as oh. well. And she she volunteered. Um, additionally, we had she had spoken to us about this. She volunteered to be one of those on-call okay. an extra day a week. So she takes a lot of her work home with her. Um, so she would need to write prescriptions sometimes. She would absolutely yeah. need to write prescriptions. Okay. And what they find here, um, and they find a specific prescription, obviously, for chloral hydrate, and they find that it was written in the name of an RMA patient, Tiffany Bain. And um, this was on April 28, 2004. And the prescription had the, the name, it had her date of birth, and it had a phone number, but apparently one digit on the phone number was altered. I guess so in case they were going to make a a phone call, you know, they would find out that that wasn't, you know, that never happened Mm -hmm. um, or they couldn't reach her. Let's put it that way. So, so they have Tiffany Bain here um, and they have it dropped off again. Here's one of the key points the prosecution's making. It was dropped off at a Walgreens that was about, say, a mile and a half or two miles from Melanie's kids' daycare. And it was dropped off in the morning. Was there, was the daycare anywhere near the RMA offices? Or near the house, I guess, how far was the daycare from the McGuire's residence and or her place of work? So it, that's not the relevant point. No? Not yet, no, okay. because she's leaving. They're, they're going to argue um, that she left her house, she dropped her kids off at daycare, and then she went right down the road. But I'm right trying to see if there's someone else who could have been, like, did Bill, was Bill maybe the one who dropped it off? Well, let's see. Um, So they're establishing a timeline, a timeline for this chloral hydrate. Is it more likely who dropped it off and and what's the timeline? So let's hear a little about the timeline. I can't say if Bill did or didn't go there that morning. I can say that I did not. If he had gone there that morning and filled that prescription, taking one dose at some point that day or evening makes sense as opposed to the state's theory that I somehow managed to keep Bill drugged for days. What she was really going into is what time it was dropped off as opposed to what time it was picked up and trying to correlate that with when my children were being dropped off at daycare because this was right down the street from daycare. I was trying to paint the picture that like I dropped the kids off and then went and submitted this. This was the day of the closing, Wednesday. According to the Walgreens computer, that prescription is filled at 8.32 a.m. The promised time was for pickup was 8.50 a.m. I'm punching the children in electronically at daycare at 8.20 in the morning. You do that as you walk in the door. From there, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old to drop off in their classroom. Depending on who was going through what on what day, it would take me easily minimum 10 minutes per kid. Both of my children had separation issues, issues at this point that every it was a process, and they were not even in the same class together, so you had to hit one and then the other. Anybody with kids that age would know there's no way, there's no way in hell that you could drop these kids off, run out the door, drive a couple miles down the road, drop this off, like it would have to be, it, it's not quite physically impossible, but it's pretty close. You want to so, go first? Yeah, that's, <laughs> okay, you can go, I have a few things. So first of all, Obviously, the prosecution verified that, A, Brad Miller did not write this prescription. Mm -hmm. Um, They verified with the patient that she did not have a prescription. And also, there's no use for chloral hydrate in a fertility clinic. Mm -hmm. So they were able to rule that out right away. So we do know that it's someone else that's writing it. What time was it picked up, the prescription? They said it would be ready by 8.50. But that doesn't mean that it was picked up at 8.50 because Melanie seems to explain her timeline as if that's the time it was picked up. Not sure what time the pickup was. Yeah, because that her whole... 
thing about dropping the kids off is not relevant if we don't have the pickup time because the time it's promised is not the same as the time a person picks it up. No, but what is relevant here is that she's logged in. She's checking her children in. Her social security right through the front door is at uh, 820, her ID. And I can vouch uh, the two and the four-year-old, there is no way you can get out of the door that, you know, each kid, you have to put the stuff in the cubby. You have to, you know distract them that, you know, it's, it's a process. Well, this is a great point actually, because you do have two kids <laughs> yes. that you that I drop, that I would drop off and it takes a long time. Well, and if she were, maybe she dropped them off and just let them cry. The people at the daycare would have been able to testify to, oh, I remember that day. The kids went on a tantrum for an hour because their mom left quick, you know. In fact, someone from the daycare did testify. And I think that she testified to the fact that it was a process with both kids. Oh, okay. But since you brought up your own kids, how, I mean, what's the, you just mentioned the cubbies and whatnot. How long, if you're dropping off two kids at the same school with two different classrooms, how long do you think it takes you if you're in the door with the two? Honestly, every kid's different. Some kids are chill and you say, bye, I'm leaving and they go play. It could take three minutes. Other kids, like my son has more, you know, um, I guess you could say attachment issues. Okay. Right. So for him, it's a little more of like, oh, look at this block. Oh, that's so cool. How about that? You know, um, here, Miss Meg has to show you this. Why don't you, you know, it's all about trying to get them to like be distracted so you could sneak out. Right. Okay. So that might take a good 10 minutes, maybe. Okay. But it's really dependent. I've seen some people drop off the kids and lay, they leave their car running and they're in and out and two minutes. But she said that was not the process. And I believe someone supported her again, a daycare, yeah. someone from the daycare testified. And I, yeah. I think it was not um, it's the case. It's plausible to say that it would take longer. So it's plausible. So what happens is you have 820, she's in. 832 is when the prescription was dropped off. So that's oh, 12 minutes later. I misunderstood. So they are claiming that-, that she dropped off the prescription after she dropped off the kids. Yes. So it would be 12 minutes to drop them off, get back in the car. And that's assuming there's no line at the pharmacy. Like she's the first one there, you know. And so we looked up also, we looked up where's the location. So the Walgreens was about a little over a mile and a half. Was there any traffic lights? I'm going to assume there's going to be traffic. Like what's the speed limit? Are there traffic lights? Jersey, you know. But I think it's kind of a stretch though. Even if, let's just say, this is possible. Yeah, Mm -hmm. is it possible she did? Right, it's possible. She buzzed in at 820, dropped literally threw those kids out, ran back to her car, gets there, gets online and gets to the pharmacist within 12 minutes. But- is it probable? I have another question. So when you drop off a prescription, at least when I drop off a prescription, they ask me for my date of birth and they have to look it up in the computer, you know, to make sure they have my insurance and such. Can you just drop off a prescription with someone else's name on it and they fill it without any information? Like, well, the information it, would have been on it. The information was on it. A phone number, a date of birth, a social security number. So that's number. assuming that this Tiffany had filled prescriptions at that pharmacy before. Oh, you're saying the first time they did. Because if you go into a pharmacy you've never been in, they need to put your health insurance into the computer. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, Actually, when the, yeah. So it's almost as if the person who wrote it to Tiffany knew that Tiffany used that pharmacy or, I don't know. It's just another sort of question mark. It is a question mark, but it's also a great point. Did she use that pharmacy and would they have known? Yeah. Because you, you agree, right? And you're, yeah, no, and you just you yeah. brought it up. I was thinking, no, I always drop prescriptions off, but I I forgot. I yeah. drop prescriptions off where I yeah. regularly go. Like if you've ever been on vacation, you have to use a random pharmacy. Absolutely. You need to give them your information, your driver's license, your health insurance card. Absolutely. You can't just... Right. Great point. Okay. So I, I don't know. That's neither here nor there, but it's sort of well, it's not interesting. Because I it's can't. all... here. Here's the question that we come down to. Is this... The prosecution says this is Melanie dropping off the prescription, But is there an alternative? And Melanie suggests that there certainly is an alternative. When I met him, he was very, very well-toned, built, ripped, whatever you want to call it. He was certainly a lot younger then. Um, He was somebody who was very intent 
when it came to weight training. You know, life happens. You kind of slow down a little bit with that. And he desperately, desperately wanted to get back into the sh- into shape to the point of buying a whole, you know, $1,200 weight set the year before. So this was something that he was looking to get back into and was on his radar. So it's not completely uncharacteristic of him. And I'm speculating. I mean, to be even-handed, I'm sitting here speculating, okay, perhaps steroid use and Bill's own sister who thinks I am as guilty as three-day-old sin, even conceded she believed him to be using steroids. And it would explain a lot in terms of his temperament, his, you know, sort of demeanor changing. That would make a lot of sense. And if you explain chlorohydrate in that context, all of that can point to him writing this out for himself because he's having a hard time sleeping. It was submitted on a paper prescription, nothing special about it, under the patient name of a patient from Reproductive Medicine Associates, so my practice, and a patient of Brad's, no less, Dr. Miller's, the physician I'm assigned to, and that the information was basically correct, the date of birth, the address, um, et cetera, which would look on its face, first of all, to be hugely problematic when you look at the prescriptions, if you don't know about the Ruth McGuire prescription, if you don't know that my husband was arrested for forgery at one point in time. It was a misdemeanor, but he was arrested for forgery. You know, again, when you look at first, everything seems very damning, very incriminating, but piece by piece, as you illuminate it, again, there's context. Well, how is it possible that my husband could have even come across this information? Well, if I'm working from home on a remote server that accesses my entire patient database, thousands of patients and all of their demographic information and their complete charts, on our patient database, you would hit a little email icon, and the subject line would be immediately that patient's full name and social security number. Back then, you could do that. So you'd hit email, and the email would be generated. Well, there's patient data found in his email account on more than one occasion in the PC. We can't figure out what the text of the emails are, but they're there. So clearly, at one point or another, he, he's got patient information. A lot of times I was on call, so I'd be working from home, or a lot of times, in fact, I worked from home, and part of that job was to ready patient packets, which I would have either a prescription pad with me that I'd be writing out the patient script, or one that Brad had already signed ahead of time. There were times he came to the office to see me. Script pads are accessible and sitting right on the desk. And considering the fact that my husband had a fifth-year pharmacy education, which is something that our team chose to only stipulate to, was huge. The signature was examined. The state had a handwriting specialist. The Basically, the specialist would not commit, said it could be my handwriting as likely as it might not be my handwriting. Technical for I don't know. And when Dr. Miller himself was cross-examined, he said it did not appear to be my rendering of his signature because he was familiar with how I signed his scripts. Commonly, nurses signed the scripts for docs, but even more commonly still, the nurses could call in the prescription. So if I, if, if it's me and it, this is my money, why am I going to even put a paper trail out there? I would physically pick up the phone and call. Okay, so there was a, a lot again to unpack yes. there. So first of all, uh, Melanie's suggesting that there is an alternative, that she did not fill the prescription. She's suggesting that Bill did. And her suggestion is that he was, she suspected him of using steroids his sisters suspected that he might be, um, and this this comes from her and from the interviews that I saw. And, and that, a side effect of steroids is having a temper. So the dryer sheet story might, you know, hold some weight. Then makes more sense if mm-hmm. he's. She, Melanie said that he was acting, behaving differently. Now I didn't see anything in the reports that his sister said he was acting erratically. Um, all I saw was a physical description. Okay. Although um, there is something from Nancy. I found an interview with a detective. Uh, Nancy is one of the sisters. Nancy was one of his sisters. It was Cindy and Nancy. And in this interview, she says that she had a conversation with Bill in late 2003 in which he was concerned about depression and said that he wanted to go to a doctor possibly to find out if he was manic depressive. Interesting. And this is going to play a role too when we talk about the internet searches that also were a big part of the prosecution's case. Good. So you have the steroid part here. 
Melanie talks also in, she's discussing if you don't know about the Ruth McGuire prescription. Yeah, what is that all about? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the prosecution establishes during trial that there was another prescription, another sedative written in Ruth McGuire's name. Now, Ruth McGuire was Bill's mother, but she had been deceased at the time this prescription was written for almost a year. It was also written on the same RMA prescription Mm -hmm. pad on Dr. Miller's. And this prescription was for something called Dalmain. And the prescription was on, written on April 1st, 2004, signed by Dr. Bradley Miller again. Was it the same pharmacy? I'm not sure how relevant that would be, but just curious. And I don't know if it was but the same But he would pharmacy. definitely know what pharmacy his mom went to. Remember the issue we talked about with Tiffany? Did they have her information know, on file? I don't know if the pharmacy is relevant. I think what's more relevant is that you have a second, you have a sedative that was written one month prior. It Delmain, and Delmain is in that family again, the chloral mm-hmm. hydrate. I don't know if it's exactly it liquid. Related. Yes. It is. Um, you know what, though? Delmain and chloral hydrate, if I'm not mistaken, when I looked it up, could come in both forms. Liquid but the chloral and pill. hydrate found in his car was, was liquid. liquid. Yes. Okay. So we can't say for sure okay. what the Delmain was, mm-hmm. but it's in the same family. This is a month ahead of time. So did Melanie write this prescription too? And if so, what did she do with the Delmain? Maybe she realized it wasn't strong enough. I don't know. Or maybe they had an odor to it or a taste and she realized I, I, I'm not going to be able to use it because he'll Possibly. sense it. I don't know. Possibly. Don't know. Or does this add yeah. a stronger, or is this stronger proof that Bill was the one writing these prescriptions? Yeah. Uh, it depends on which way you, you look at it. Actually, yeah. the prosecution was looking at this for handwriting purposes. And Melanie brought that point up as well. So Dr. Miller couldn't identify whether or not it was Melanie's mm-hmm. signature. We're just talking about a signature here. Um, but he did testify that it didn't look like her signature. I think he said that. It didn't did. look like it, but he couldn't be certain. They had, you know, someone from some handwriting um, specialist came in and, and nobody could conclusively say who the signatures were. There just wasn't any way to say this. So you have the Ruth McGuire prescription, you have um, nobody being able to identify the handwriting, and you have a third point that Melanie brought up, which was she didn't have to write prescriptions. She could pick up the phone and call them in. So why even go yeah, through why the leave hassle? A paper trail, why she said. leave a paper trail? It doesn't make sense. So how could she call them in? They just know her by voice, or she gives them some. I sort think there's of, an identifying number. There maybe. must be right. Yeah, yeah. There's probably an identifying that number Bill that Bill probably didn't have, which is why he needed to do it on the pad. Well, that's one argument, yeah. right? Um, that it makes more sense to me. I have to say that she would call these prescriptions in. Why leave the paper trail? Yeah. So there's that point. That's that's hers. But we don't know the exact protocol. Maybe you're only allowed to call in certain kinds of medicines and certain amounts. Who knows? We don't. But I will say Dr. Scott did testify that it was common for nurses to call in prescriptions. Okay. I mean, think about it. I, I can think about it for my own. Yeah. I will say this. Every time I call a doctor's office for a prescription, it is the my two doctors. It's the nurses that call it yep. in. So Absolutely. it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So the last point here is also something that Melanie brings up that we could not substantiate. But according to Melanie, Bill had a misdemeanor conviction in Middlesex in like 1994, 95. She said that he was arrested and he was arrested as a, in his capacity as a waiter. He forged a tip from a customer he waited on. So she said he was arrested for forgery. She said it was settled for less than that. It was a misdemeanor offense. And maybe she said he got a fine or community service. She couldn't be sure. I did due diligence on this. I contacted the courts. I wrote a request for dispositions. They couldn't find anything. In fairness, I didn't have a case number. And a lot of jurisdictions, as you know, Amy, they don't retain misdemeanor yeah, it's records. Yeah, would be expunged by now. Or not expunged, just destroyed. It's 20-something yeah. years mm-hmm. later. Uh, how many years? Yeah, 20-something yeah. years later. And they 25 years, they just don't retain yeah. those records. So... It's not, it's possible that, you know, it was there, but we just couldn't find it. We do know Why that. Why would she lie about that, though? About the forgery? It sounds like that must be true, even if you can't find record of it. Yeah, I I don't think she did. If I had a guess, I'm yeah. going to say that she's not lying about that. But I want to make it clear that I did not substantiate it. So Got this it. is still her word. But if you look at this in the context here... If it if it's true and he forged something, then we are also looking at a it's it supports her claim that it's possibly Bill, right? Yeah, it's a pattern of behavior. So I think we have to at least consider the possibility um, that it, it shows that he's capable of forging, right? He's someone who would do something like that. 
I think so. Um, there was one last point I want to bring up. Melanie mentioned that in Bill's email, um, in one of the emails that they found, and this was part of uh, the computer forensics, in, which we're going to get into, that there were subject lines that contained patient names at RMA, at her practice, and social security numbers. And when Melanie said this, I thought, okay, you know, again, when when she says something, it could be according to Melanie, but we have to make all attempts as we've been doing to verify this information. While I was able to get my hands on some of this discovery, um, Mm -hmm. I got it. I've get, you know, our information comes from the searches that we do. It comes from court transcripts. Mm -hmm. It comes from her friends who've actually been helping and they have discovery. And one of the things I did see, um, though we couldn't get the content of the email, was an email that was forwarded from an old email address that Bill and Melanie shared. I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, couples actually shared. shared, Yeah, like Bill and Melanie (laughs) at AOL.com. Right, right. People did this back in the day. So... It was like a Bill and Melanie, something like that. Yeah. Um, and there was a forward from that old address they shared to Bill's New Jersey links, which is his, I think it was one of his work addresses, okay. um, one of his primary email addresses, I know it was. And it did contain patient names and social security numbers. So are we thinking he used those to write these prescriptions or at the very least it shows that he maybe was doing something not honest or? I mean, I don't know, but what purpose would he also have in, in like what forwarding? would be is there any like innocuous purpose that would have the the name of the the script was uh, the original uh, the chloral hydrate prescription was Tiffany Bain and she wasn't in that that group, but was it possible he was going you know kind of using yeah. others? We really can't say for sure. What we probably could say is that it's a little bit odd and probably there's no reason for Bill to be forwarding any of this these emails to his personal account. Isn't it true that Bill also had some training in pharmacy school? Yes. So wh- another point is that Bill almost made it through pharmacy school. Um, he was, I think, in the last steps of his program, certainly in the last year of pharmacy school, when he he had to drop out. And we discussed this earlier because of a felony conviction he had. Mm-hmm. And that was um, the offense in which he tried to convince Melanie to testify that she was actually driving a car. So she sustained a, her a misdemeanor, her only offense as well as a result of this. So he had this felony conviction. He had to drop out, but he was well-versed in So he would be able to, I wouldn't know how to write a uh, script for no. chloral hydrate. Would you? No. No, but he would. I don't think it would be that hard to figure out either if you wanted to, but he would. Yeah, I mean, in theory. So both of them would, obviously. So it's sort of like, okay, so Melanie and Bill both. So we know one of them did it, but. I think at the end of the day, you have to look at who who do we think is more likely? Um, you know, we can form our own opinions, but I do think that it wasn't, a, it's not a slam dunk. I don't know that they were able to highlight this very well, the defense, but when this I was reviewed, crucial to their case, though. I think this is really crucial. The, the the very last point, I know I said this again, but the very, very last point I will make was one that Melanie um, concluded with was, you know, this chloral hydrate was found in Bill's car, but it wasn't even found in his system. So was it even relevant? It wasn't found in a system. They couldn't find it. But it's possible it was there and they just didn't detect it. It's correct? possible, but it's not an established fact that this chloral hydrate was used. It may be that the chloral hydrate has absolutely nothing to do with his death. I think even more interesting is the fact that only two doses were, were missing. And it sounds like that wouldn't be enough to even sedate a man of his size. I don't, certainly not over a couple of days, which was one of the prosecution's arguments at the end that it was used, you know, continuously. No, that wouldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. There were definitely, you know, two doses, three at most were taken, but um, I actually think it was more like two and a third dose was taken or a third and fourth dose was taken to be tested. Gotcha. So, okay. But the reason why the prosecution included it is because they needed it to establish their timeline. Correct. You mean the chloral hydrate? Just, the, yeah, the chloral hydrate they needed and the fact that, you know, she it. dropped off. It's part of their theory. It's part of their theory. Do they that, have a case without that piece? Well, they have a case, but they did need it to establish that Melanie would have to sedate them. How else would that this have all gone down? She she was, they're saying, there was no, okay, because there was no evidence They say that of, she shot him, but yeah. that she sedated him first to make everything easier. So she sedated him and that's yeah, part of- Yeah, to avoid a struggle. That makes sense. Yes. So that that is a key part, I think, of their prosecution. But Their theory doesn't really hold weight without the chloral hydrate. It's a lot tougher for yeah. them, I think. So after the chloral hydrate, at some point, the prosecution will address um, the easy pass charges. 
Ooh. Yeah, we have discussed this before. So Melanie said that she went looking for Bill, you know, the next night or it was either one night or two nights later. But yet she didn't report him missing or she wasn't concerned, but she went to look for him. Well, she didn't think he was missing, according to her. She said he, she thought he's going to blow off steam. He got it. And then she said feeling irrational and upset and all of these things. She was upset. So she got in her car. She went to Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. She went looking for him. Remember she said she found his car. Mm -hmm. She moves his car. Then she's, you know, kind of in the Xanax fog. So she yep. takes a cab back to Woodbridge. I can, ne- I will never get over that. <laughs> Why? That, that makes no sense to me. There's a third trip that she takes to Atlantic City. So let's see what Melanie has to say about this. The fact that he didn't return to work on the 17th had concerned me. So before work on the 18th, I was not sleeping. And I asked my father if he wanted to take a ride with me down to Atlantic City. Again, just sort of driving around. I mean, what I was doing, I had, you know, looking to see if that car was still there. But again, I wasn't 100% sure of where I had parked it until later when the police told me the name of the hotel. Things looked different in the light of the morning than they did. And I really didn't pay attention exactly. I knew it was near the Tropicana, but there's a couple seedy little motels down there. But I was actually kind of relieved because I didn't see it. I didn't see it there, of course, at this time come to find out after the fact it had been towed. But that was one of the, the two days that the Easy Pass transponder hit. The Easy Pass transponder went off on that date on the second, unbeknownst to me. I had the transponder off, down, in, I can't remember if it was the glove box or a bag on the floor by the glove box. The account was in Bill's name, and I did not want him knowing where I was going, coming and going. And that was something that he used to do as well with his employer. If he was basically going someplace he had no business being during work hours, he would take it down as well. Those two hits on the easy pass would end up being an issue once Virginia Beach comes into play and they ask me about easy pass records because I go onto the account, I see that these two hits are there and I panic. And I call EasyPass and ask to get those charges removed because I am afraid that people are going to look at it exactly how they end up looking at it and looking at me like I could have had something. You have 60 seconds remaining. (laughs) That just happens at the worst possible moment. Wow. Okay. Um, Maybe she said this and I was um, not listening, but where were the EasyPass hits that were in question? Atlantic City. So they were... So why, did she, why would she... Two of these three trips, I guess, that she took to Atlantic City, they pinged on but the easy why pass. Would she be af- why would she be afraid that it would make her look guilty? After they found out that Bill was deceased, yeah. um, she realized that she had moved his car, according to Melanie. But she never told the police she did that? No, she didn't. And she Until said, the heat was on, I guess, right? Eventually she does. I don't know that she ever told them that directly, okay. to be honest. All right. They had an interview with her, and I don't believe that came out in an okay. interview. I believe it came out later on. Mm-hmm. She says she realizes after his, um, you know, after she's notified of his death um, that that she's going to be a suspect, and she's done some shit that looks shady, you know, for lack of better it words. It shadier to call Easy Pass and have it removed. What does she think? They don't keep records of that? I have no idea. How stupid. I, I thought that... I mean, that's a, you know, I, I real, I'm stuck so on this So did they one. remove it? Do you know? Did Easy Pass remove it? I don't it? know if they removed but it, they but definitely, they made a record of it. I was going to say they made a, made a record of the request, which is all that matters. It's, it's And why did she not have the Easy Pass up? Because she said she was she didn't want him to know where she was going. So the account's in his name, and he okay. she, does, she doesn't want him to see her movements at all. So she said she took it down, not not just for the trip. She oh, said just she, in general. Yeah, she it said she been took out. it down. Yeah. Okay. She's taking it down. And so she just happens to have change in her car for all the tolls? <laughs> I mean, well, couldn't you pay in a single and get change? Or no, you, remember those things you have to like throw the change in? You know, what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I just don't know if they accept bills or not. Maybe she's got tons of change in her yeah, car. Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. This is a tough one for me. Yeah. This is this is I, what, what's tough about it: the fact that she was shady and had them removed, or the fact that 
She claims that she didn't want Bill to know where she's going or all of it. The whole thing yeah. from the trips. I, I've never, never liked this. This Quite the roller coaster, the chlorohydrate. I was like, yeah, prosecutor got it wrong. Now I'm like, oh, this isn't looking good for Melanie. One thing I'll say is that the third trip she made that she references in this last clip that we just listened to was on May 18th. Here's my question. The prosecution says that she goes on the first trip to Lynch City. She Remind says, me again what day his body was found. So the suitcases were found on multiple days. The first one. But they're all the found fifth, by the 18th. The 11th, okay. the 17th. They're, they're all okay. found. Yes, they're all found. The prosecution says this trip to Atlantic City that she took with an accomplice was just to set his car up there, right? Just mm-hmm. to leave the car with the chloral hydrate, make it look like Bill's gone to yeah. some seedy place, right? And the prosecution says she goes back the next day to, or a day or two later to check to make sure everything's okay, the car's in the right place. What does that even mean? Well, they're saying the first two trips are to establish that he's left his car and she okay. wants to make sure she got the job done. Okay, mm-hmm. I can even maybe buy that. Why does she go back on May 18th then? Her explanation is that she's she went back with her dad because she's looking for him still. He was- Oh, because he thought he was found, but she didn't know yet. She didn't know that it was- But my point here is if she knew he was dead already because she yeah. killed him, what the hell is she going back for a third time? To yeah, because it's not like she she's clearly hiding it from- people that she's doing it, right? So it's not like it's even her trying to put on a show, like, oh, I'm looking for my husband. Well, she said she was looking for her husband. I mean, she said said the point of the trip, her explanation is that he was supposed to return to work on that day. I guess it was May 17th. Mm -hmm. He had taken a couple of weeks off of work, if you recall, because they were going to be moving. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, when I called his work, it had been a couple of weeks and now I was getting anxious and I was starting to worry, like, what's up with this guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So she says on the 18th, he didn't return to work. She was going back to Atlantic City. Where's his car? Let me find out. Um, and and my question then is, I get what the prosecution's saying that the first trip and maybe even the second were mm-hmm. to set his car up and set up a scene. But why is Melanie returning for a third maybe time? Maybe she left evidence somewhere that she had just remembered? Possibly. I don't know. The third trip is one that I can't get on board with mm-hmm. in terms of the prosecution's point. I don't think she goes Why back. Why the prosecution, how they explain it? Did they explain it or they just sort of ignored it? I asked, I'm not, I don't remember what the explanation okay. was. I don't believe there was some strong explanation mm-hmm. that I'm missing here. I think it was still like, it's still all a part of the ruse, yeah. you know, to make it look like she's looking for him. Yeah. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she was really looking for him. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it holds a lot of weight either way, personally. Okay. Well, the the easy pass charges, I mean, this was damning though. This was damaging in, in trial, the easy pass charges, having them removed. This looks bad. It just also doesn't speak well to her character. She looks kind of shady, right? I think so. Yeah. No, I think so. She's She's got some lies Like here. instead of doing that, if I'm in this situation and they're accusing me of my husband's death and I have these easy pass charges that would make me look guilty, I would just say to the police, hey, Here's my easy pass. I have these charges. I could explain though. I know you're going to think that they're for this, but this is what they're for. Right. So why didn't she fess up right? to that? Yeah. But then again, I do also understand panicking and being like, I've I've heard a lot of stories of innocent people who do destroy evidence when they're innocent because they're afraid that, you know. Right. Uh, you know, she can explain it in terms of her being irrational and getting yeah. afraid and going, oh my God, they're really looking at me. And I, yeah. oh my God, I've done this stuff. I've gone to Atlantic City. I've seen, I moved his car. Yeah. This is her explanation, which yeah. you okay. can maybe. Yeah. There's one more trip that's going to be um, problematic for Melanie. And that is the trip. The prosecution says that there's one more trip that's made, right? These trips to Atlantic City were to set up the car. But Bill's body was found in the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia. So they say that she took one more trip and that was to drive his body seven hours, almost seven hours, and drop off these suitcases. In Virginia. In Virginia. Why not drop them off? There's tons of waterways and bridges and even the Delaware... Uh, water gap. There's a huge bridge over an ocean. Why not drop it there? Why go all the way to Virginia? It's far away, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's far away. It hmm. doesn't, I don't, I can't, it's not like we live in an area where there's no other bridges and waterways. There's, and dropping it in an ocean makes more sense than dropping it in a bay. 
I think so. How does the prosecution even know that she, how can they even show that she got there? You might wonder, because there are no easy pass charges actually that indicate that Melanie went to Virginia. So well, because she took her easy pass down, remember? Well, but if it pinged yeah, for Atlantic pinging. City. Why wouldn't it so ping? So how do they know this? Well, And there are several tolls on the, along that route. Right, there yeah. are. So the prosecution, they don't know that she was in Virginia Beach, but what they do know is that she admitted to being in Delaware on May 2nd. How do they know this? Well, they used testimony from Brad Miller. Um, Brad Miller, again, was who Melanie was having her relationship with. And Melanie discussed this trip with Brad in one of uh, an innocuous conversation. And the reason the prosecution knows this is because Brad was actually wearing a wire and he was making wiretaps of his conversations with Melanie. Melanie said she had no idea. She had no idea that he was doing this at all. She thought he was in her corner. Yeah, she thought they were together on this one. Uh, Melanie told me that she literally vomited when she found out about this. So he apparently was working with the prosecution, you Mm -hmm. know. um, Was was he... what do you think he, why was he doing this? Obviously there wasn't, people do it for immunity sometimes, but he wasn't, they had already, you know, can't, they didn't think he was a suspect, correct? So what does he gain no, they, from doing they this? they probably thought he was a suspect in well, the beginning. I know that they did. They thought maybe he was her accomplice, but they were able to rule so, that out early on. No, I think the wiretaps are the way to rule it out. Look, really? if you're not an accomplice, then you won't have a problem with taping her. And this will show that you clearly had no knowledge of this crime. But if there's no evidence, I mean, if you love this woman, like... They needed an accomplice. Look, I'm sure he was afraid. I'm sure he was thinking, I look like an accomplice here. Yeah. And, and if someone says to you, you know what, buddy, you can prove it. Yeah. You, you're not an accomplice. If you wear these and caps. And plus, he, he probably um, wanted to get back with his wife at this point. Everything was exposed, right? So he probably was, at this point, he knew him and Melanie had no future together. Even if she was innocent, it's, they gig is up, right? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it was probably coming to the end yeah. here. So she finds out that Brad is making these How'd tapes. How'd she find out? I trial? Let's hear. You know, at some point when the grand jury starts up, you know, my attorney's like, listen, your phones are probably bust. But again, this is so surreal. This is like, this is law and order stuff. This isn't like really happening in my head. Like, how, there's no way they're following me, tapping my phone. Eventually, yeah, you find out it is the case. It's scary as hell. It turns out that when it came to Brad and a friend of mine from nursing school by the name of Jim Finn, I would find out ultimately that the police had prevailed upon them to make consensual recording of telephone conversations. With Brad, it was very clever because he and I often communicated, even if we were in physically different offices, we communicated via the intercom at work. So I would just pick up, dial his extension. He buzzed me and says, call me back on such and such extension. So, you know, I go into the conference room, I call him back. No idea. He was sitting there with a recording device, reading scripted questions. During the course of the phone call, I'm heard saying to him, why are you talking like this all of a sudden? You know, if we're going to be together, if we're going to do this, if we're going to... Wait a minute. It's like one of those, yeah, someday kind of things. But there were no... There were no plans. There were no imminent, like, hey, okay, next year you're going to do this. No, no, nothing like that. These were the questions the police were feeding him. I want to judge it. I want to be angry at it. But at the same time, I understand the fear and the intimidation that these people can put into you. With Brad, my... My issue was that the intimacy continued after that fact. No. Yes. Are you serious? <laughs> so he was wiretapping her and then continuing to uh, have sex with her. Yes. That's fucked up. That is. That is like, <laughs> wow, what a derp. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, but no, wow. no, it's, listen. I, she <laughs> And is that probably, that's probably part of that made her throw up because that's like really nasty. That, that was definitely part of it. And they elicited this. He admitted to it on the stands. Yeah. He said it. Yes, I continue to. So yes, he was. And his wife stayed with him, huh? Huh? Sorry, here nor there, just continue. Right, <laughs> understood. Yeah, that was a shocking event. And yeah. The prosecution was able to get some pivotal information here. One thing I should say, I skipped over, and I'd like to go back for one second, regarding the drives and the trips to Atlantic City. There was actually some footage, some grainy footage at one point of Melanie parking Bill's car. So it was captured. How do they know it was Melanie if it was grainy? Well, it was it was his car, and she mm-hmm. admitted to parking it. Okay. She said, yeah, I moved the car, right? Um, 
But later on, the prosecution brought in a tow truck driver. Um, He was going to testify about the car and about moving it from this spot. The tow truck driver, though, actually winds up inadvertently helping Melanie's case. The gentleman's name was Anthony Miranda. He had very brief examination um, on the stand. Where did you find the car? Uh, Toward the rear, away from the Pacific Avenue side. But they were careful to sort of not really bring out the super detailed diagram. And then Steve is cross-examining and he's saying, all right, well, when was the first time you heard from Jersey? And I think how it became kind of contentious for him, New Jersey didn't tell him that the video of the Maximo was from eight or nine days before he he towed it. So, you know, he basically told them, and he spoke to Virginia Beach as well. He remembered them. And he said his recollection was vivid. It was found in the Flamingo parking lot, but the spot that I parked it in, I don't even want to say several, it was like half a dozen spaces away. He basically said it was sort of more towards the inside of the parking lot because he remembered having to turn the truck a certain way to get at the car to be able to even get it up on the truck. Had the car been towed from the spot in which I parked it, his experience would have been completely different with how he had to pull the truck and everything else. And they kept trying to get him to say that you know, that, well, he wasn't sure, and he he did not waver. He's like, no, I'm actually very sure. And somebody else was with him, a gentleman by the name of Ryan Doherty, and they they never called him, nor did we. Uh, But he told the investigator he was, quote, almost totally certain. If you couple that with the fact that there's missing footage, how the hell is there missing footage? Oh, we just don't have this footage. You know, we had a hard time getting the footage out of the security system. We removed the entire system, and these days were just lost. What the hell do you mean these days were just lost? They called to stand a gentleman by the name of Osmat Hussein. He was the one working at the Flamingo Hotel, and he tells the attorneys that and the jury that he turned over their whole security system to the police when he was asked to New Jersey, and... We ultimately end up piecing together that seven days of footage is missing. Seven days of footage is missing between the time I parked that car and by the time it was towed. You can't say nobody came to this car. You can't say that my husband didn't find his car and get in it and go somewhere or get in it, you know, move it, give the keys to somebody. I mean, the thing is, if this guy is saying it was moved from a different parking spot, it had to get there somehow. So the fact that you're missing these days, whether it's something nefarious or not, whether it's just, you know, a shitty security system, it there, it still begs the question. I don't, I don't even know what to begin to think would be plausible in that situation, but the fact that it did not get towed from where I put it, more importantly, that missing footage would show who did go to it and move it. So conveniently, the tape, it shows Melanie, a grainy video of Melanie moving the car, and then the tape goes blank for seven days. Come on. Wow. And the car is found in a different spot. Which the only way it could be explained is that someone else who had the car keys, either Bill moved it or someone else had his car and moved it, or Melanie went back and moved it again. Well, what do you think? Is it possible that Melanie's just lying about where she moved it to? No, there's footage oh, of it. Oh, there's footage of ah, it. So okay. we have proof. So Melanie parks the car in a spot and they expect the tow driver, I guess, to say that's where I towed it from. And he says, uh-uh. So. The big question here is, did Bill find his car? Next time on Direct Appeal, does Melanie drive to Virginia with Bill's body? Or is she just furniture shopping in Delaware, like she said? Also, the state presents evidence that someone was searching the McGuire's home computer for undetectable poisons. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com.